Welcome to episode 16 of Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation. I'm Father Ron Shibley, founder and director of the Anglican Internet Church and producer of this series. Revisions to this series are part of the AIC's continuing celebration of the start of its second decade on the web. If you have not already viewed episode 2, which includes my primer on numerology in Revelation, I urge you to do so since understanding how John used numerology is critical to understanding Revelation and this series. In this episode, the focus is on chapter 11, the account of the two witnesses and the seventh trumpet. John's perspective, as in chapter 10, is still earth looking toward heaven. The chapter is filled with more numerology and more back references to Old Testament histories and the writings of the prophets. The illustrations for much of this sequence is The Two Witnesses, another illumination from the St. Saver Beatus, an 11th century manuscript of Revelation, and details from St. John with the Measuring Rod and the Little Book from the Bamberg Apocalypse, another 11th century manuscript, as it was used on the cover and on page 90 in the companion AIC bookstore publication, Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation. I have divided the reading of chapter 11 into three parts. The first is verses 1 through 6. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood, to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. The temple of God, which he is instructed to measure, is represented by the square white building at his feet. The Old Testament precedent is the instruction to the prophet Ezekiel in the measuring of the great temple in Ezekiel chapter 40, 41, and 42 in the 25th year of the Babylonian captivity. There are several New Testament precedents from the writings of the Apostle Paul for the concept of the temple and holy city to which John refers in verses 1 and 2. It is not a specific building, even a restored one, but represents the church universal, which is built upon a foundation laid by the prophets and the apostles, with Christ as the cornerstone, together with the worshipers filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God, in the Spirit. That's Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. The illustration is Andre Rubilyas famous uncomplete early 15th century icon of Paul in temper and gold on panel. Another New Testament precedent is 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. The power given to the Gentiles to trample the holy city in verse 2 may be the same expectation spoken of by Jesus in his prophecy concerning Jerusalem in Luke 21 verse 24, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Numerology appears again in verse 2b, the account of the treading of the holy city underfoot as lasting 42 months, which means 42 lunar months of 30 days each, which is the same as the period three and a half years or 1,260 days, all of which I discussed in episode 2 in the primer on numerology. All these numbers, which appear several times in Revelation, including later in this chapter, suggest something which is incomplete or not fulfilled, an understanding supported by the prophecy in Luke 21:24, read in the previous slide. The two witnesses clothed in sackcloth in verse 3 were understood in the early church as Elijah and Moses, who stood one on each side next to Jesus at the Transfiguration. The illustration is a circa 898 A.D. illumination of the Transfiguration from the Gospels of Otto III, produced at the Scriptorium at Reichenau Monastery, Reichenau, Germany. The other New Testament precedent is from Matthew eleven twenty one, Jesus' reference to the punishment of the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, referring to the Jewish tradition of sackcloth as the garment of the penitent. The illustration is an illumination in tempera and gold of Matthew writing his gospel, created around 750 A.D. from the Codex Aureus of Stockholm, also known as the Codex Aureus of Canterbury, in the collection of the Royal Library at Stockholm, Sweden. 
numerology appears again in the description in verse 3 of how long the two witnesses are to prophesy, 1,260 days, which is the same as 42 months or three and one-half years. This number has an Old Testament precedent in two of Daniel's visions in which references are made to a year plus a year plus half a year. Then the saint shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Daniel 7, verse 25, and now from Daniel 12, verse 7, Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. The illustration is a 17th century Russian Orthodox tempera and gold on panel icon of Daniel. Once again, John demonstrates his extensive knowledge of the Hebrew prophets in verses 4, 5, and 6. The Old Testament precedent for the vision of two lampstands and two olive trees may come from Zechariah 4, 1, 2, and 3a. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it. The illustration is an early 18th century Russian Orthodox icon of the prophet Zechariah from the iconostasis at Kiji Monastery in the Karelia region of northwest Russia. The Old Testament precedent for the fate of those who harm the two witnesses in verses 4, 5, and 6, that is, being devoured by fire from the mouth of the witnesses and the bringing down of plagues and the bloodying of the waters, is found in the plague accounts in Exodus 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. These are similar to the plague allusions in chapters 8 and 9, which I discussed in episode 13 and episode 14. The precedent for punishment by the lack of rainfall dates to events during the reign of Elijah the Tishbite from 1 Kings 17, 1 and 7. As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew or rain these years except at my word. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. The second reading from chapter 11 is verses 7 through 14. The illustration for this and the next ten slides is the two witnesses and the beast from the abyss from the Bamberg Apocalypse as used on page 83 in the AIC bookstore publication Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation. When they had finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. 
and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The concept of the pit or the abyss as the resting place of the dead was discussed in episode 14 regarding Revelation 9, verses 1, 2, and 11. Now, in verse 7, a new figure, the beast from the abyss, not previously described, emerges from the abyss. The beast is to be the murderer of the two witnesses from the first set of readings, 11, 3 through 6. Here, I think St. John is recalling his own experience as witness to the day when he heard Jesus call the devil or Satan a murderer. He was a murderer from the beginning, John 8, verse 44. The city which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord also was crucified in verse 8, is Jerusalem. The spiritual meaning is that Jerusalem, the city of David the king, and metaphor for the Hebrew people and their relationship with God, were, like sinful Sodom and like Egypt, from which the Jews were led, led away by God, had forgotten that they need God. In verses 8, 9, and 11, the prophecy is that dead bodies lie in the street for three and one-half days. As I have noted in the Primer on Numerology in Episode 2 and in several earlier episodes of the series, three and a half signifies something which is incomplete. It is half of the perfect number seven. This was surely calculated to catch the attention of Jews, since Hebrew tradition required that bodies be buried on the day of their death. In verse 9, John uses the phrase peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations again, as in Revelation 10, verse 11. He prophesies that the people of the earth will rejoice, beg merry, and send gifts over the death of the two prophets, which means the two witnesses. The torment the two witnesses are accused of inflicting on the earth means they're warning the people of the coming of the final judgment and the need for repentance of their sins against God. 
Here John evokes the warnings of the writing prophets of the Old Testament. Advice to repent is rarely welcome. Redemption comes in verses 11 and 12 when after the three and a half days, a symbol of incompletion, the cycle is completed as the two witnesses are brought back to life by the breath of life from God. In the NKJV text, they are brought back by the, quote, breath of life from God and are invited by the voice from heaven to come up here, another invitation to see things from the heavenly perspective, as in the case of Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19.24 and John himself in Revelation 4, verse 1. Where the New King James text says two witnesses were revived by the breath of life from God, the King James Version says it was by the, quote, spirit of life. Although the words are different, the meaning is the same, since both translations are based upon the Koine Greek word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, which means wind or breath or spirit. In Christian theology, this means the Holy Spirit, who is called the giver of life in the Nicene Creed, and who in Eastern Orthodox prayers is addressed as the all-holy and life-giving Spirit. The concept of God as the giver of life has both Old Testament and New Testament precedent. John's knowledge of the Old Testament is on display with this clear allusion to the dry bones prophecy of Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 6. Illustrated in the engraving by Gustave Doré for his Grand Bible du Tours, published in Paris and London in 1866 A.D., the English-language version is commonly known as Doré's English Bible. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. The New Testament precedent is St. John's own gospel, the account of the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus with ten of the disciples, including John himself. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
That's John 20, verses 21 and 22. In Anglican worship, the familiar 19th century hymn, Breathe on Me, Breath of God, written by Edwin Hatch in 1878, is often used in association with the rite of Holy Eucharist. In verse 13, John reports the ascent of the two witnesses into heaven, accompanied by a great earthquake, another traditional symbol of the presence of God used several times previously in Revelation, in this case destroying a tenth of the city with 7,000 killed. One-tenth, like one-third, is another symbolic fraction, signifying that mercy was shown for nine-tenths of the city was not destroyed. Seven thousand is a multiple of the magical number seven times the symbolic word thousand, which in Hebrew means not a number, but great many. John tells us that the remaining nine-tenths of the earth were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. As with the first woe, John employs the dramatist's device of the pregnant pause, following it with a prophetic announcement intended to induce anticipation. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The third and final reading from chapter 11 is verses 15 to 19. The illustrations throughout this segment are the seventh trumpet, another illumination from the Saint Sever Beatus, and a detail from the Bamberg Apocalypse as it was used on page 96 in the companion publication Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for ever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. The sounding of the seventh trumpet in verse 15 is considered by many Bible scholars, especially those in the Eastern Church, as the turning point in Revelation, a view shared slightly indirectly, as we'll see in the next episode, by many Roman Catholic scholars. 
where everything from Revelation 4, verse 1, to Revelation 11, 14, was prelude. Everything from Revelation 11, 15, to the end of the book, is about judgment. The message is that the mysteries are over. With verse 15, the perspective has shifted from a focus on the perils on earth to the joys in heaven. In John's Gospel, we find a foretelling of this development. In John 12, verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. This is the same idea reported in the Gospel of St. Matthew in Matthew 13, verse 43b. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. St. John reports Jesus using the same expression at the end of the letters to each of the seven churches in Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, and which I discussed in episodes 5, 6, 7, and 8. The illustration is the Christ Pentocrator icon at the Monastery of St. Catherine in Sinai, the oldest known icon of Jesus made in the 6th century, for the opening of the monastery, and according to tradition, commissioned by the Byzantine Emperor Justinian. Verse 15b announces that the revelation of all the mysteries of God has come and that there is joy in heaven at this news. The angels, who are the loud voices in heaven, sing a doxology. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In verses 16, 17, and 18, the 24 elders fall down and worship God, but with a difference. Where in Revelation 4, 10, and 11, they praise and worship him who sits on the throne as the worthy creator of all things. And in Revelation 5, 8 to 10, they praise and worship the Lamb, Jesus Christ. In verse 17, they praise him as Lord God Almighty, which comes from the Koine Greek Pantocrator, for which the Hebrew equivalent is El Shaddai. The title is used in the New Testament only ten times in the Greek New Testament, nine of which are in Revelation. And in the King James text, four times, all of them in Revelation. 4, 8, 11, 17, 15, 3, and 16, 7. For more on the scriptural names of God, see the entries for Almighty, Lord, and Pantocrator in the AIC bookstore publication, The Layman's Lexicon, the 24 elders praise and acknowledge with a doxology, the seventh and longest of nine doxologies in Revelation. In it, they praise his immortality, speaking of the one who is and who was and who is to come, the same phrase which was used in the first doxology in Revelation, Revelation 4, verse 8. His power because you have taken your great power and reigned. His judgment and wrath. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged. 
and then later destroy those who destroy the earth. And they praise his promise of reward to his servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. John will use the phrase small and great again in Revelation 13, verse 16, 19, 5, 19, 18, and 20, 12. At the end of the doxology, John reports the temple of God opening in heaven with the Ark of the Covenant, lost after the destruction of Jerusalem in 67 AD, restored to its rightful place, accompanied by lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail, all symbols of the presence of the Almighty, which St. John used two previous times. Revelation 4, verse 5, and Revelation 8, verse 5. And we'll do so again in Revelation 16, verse 18, and Revelation 19, verse 6. These four events are also similar to the prophetic warnings in the writings of the Old Testament prophets mentioned in episode 13 and to Exodus 19, verse 16. Modern interpreters speculate that this refers to a new tabernacle, since the original was probably destroyed after being carried away by the Babylonian conquerors in 586 B.C. While John may have been nostalgic for a restoration of the temple as it existed before its destruction, later in Revelation he makes it clear that the church, wherever it is, and the faithful, wherever they are, are the new temple, or as he wrote in verse 19, this is a temple of God opened in heaven. Thank you for joining me for episode 16 of Revelation, an idealist interpretation. Next time in episode 17, the focus is on chapter 12, the woman, the child, and the dragon. Other AIC resources on topics discussed in this episode include from our Christian Education video series, The Nicene Creed, presented in eight episodes, the addition of the clause concerning the Holy Spirit to the Creed is discussed in Episode 8. From the AIC Bookstore Publications, in the companion book to this series, Revelation and Idealist Interpretation, Chapter 11 includes three illuminations from the Bamberg Apocalypse with the seventh trumpet sounds on page 96. There is also a special text box Lord God Almighty in Revelation on page 97, and there is my primer on numerology in Revelation on pages 7 to 11. From the writing prophets of the Old Testament, the major prophet Ezekiel is discussed in part 2, chapter 3, pages 29 to 36, including the dry bones prophecy and the Minor prophet Zechariah is discussed in Part 3, Chapter 11, on pages 105 to 110. From the layman's lexicon, words and phrases of relevance are abyss, almighty, angels slash archangels, creator, doxology, Gentiles, 
Hades, Heaven, Judgment, Mystery, Numerology, and Satan. The key to accessing everything produced by the Anglican Internet Church is available at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net where we've made it easier for you to learn about Christian education, doctrine, worship, and study using your preferred way of learning. You can watch our Bible study, Christian education, and seasonal video series using the links on either the digital library or Bible study pages. If you prefer listening, you can listen to the podcast versions of any of our videos using the links on the podcast archive page or to our podcast homilies for all the Sundays in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer using the links on the podcast homilies page. If you prefer written works, you can access any of the 17 AIC bookstore publications all but one available in both paperback and Kindle editions using the virtual bookstore link at the bottom of the homepage or directly using my Amazon Author Central page https colon right slash right slash www.amazon.com right slash author right slash Ronald hyphen e hyphen Shibley. Everything after .com must be in lowercase letters. I also invite you to subscribe to my blog page at www.anglicaninternetchurch, accessible through the Father Ron's blog tab at the top or the bottom of any page on the site. By clicking the Follow Anglican Internet Church legend, you'll be invited to register your email address and receive notice of all new postings. Please be assured that we do not share subscriber information with any other organization, and you can ask for the removal of your address at any time. Until next time, may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Glory be to God for all things. Amen. This program has been a presentation of the Anglican Internet Church. We invite you to visit our website and make use of its resources at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net.